Welcome to episode 82 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. We've got lots of ski-related chat for you in this episode, including advice on how to stay safe on the mountain, what a rocker is, and interviews with not just one, but two British Olympic medal winners. Uh, now, firstly, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. I think uh, emissions are a big topic right now with COP26 going on. So you might be interested in this activity I spotted this week in Andermatt, uh, where this winter you can try e-quad biking. You can actually rent electric uh, bikes by the hour, ride them on a special 3K uh, track. So that's a great uh, emissions-free activity. And to go along, uh, if you happen to be in Andermatt, uh, with ski touring, which is what I was doing when I was there last in, in March 2020, the day after the lifts closed. Uh, and I happen to travel by train as well. So if you want a, a really a low-carbon trip, try going by train to Andermatt, ski touring, and go e-quad biking. Now, my name's Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest today. Uh, firstly, I'd like to start with uh, Henry Schneewind from the eponymous Henry at Henry's Avalanche Talks. Hi, Henry. How are you? Hi, Ian. Ian. Great. It's great to be here. Excellent. And also joining us, we have Megan Hughes, Deputy Editor at In The Snow magazine. Hi, Megan. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, you may have spotted that that story, the e-quad biking, I pulled out of the most recent issue of uh, In the Snow magazine. So I do read them, uh, honestly. Uh, <laughs> let, let's start by finding out when you skied or snowboarded last. Henry, uh, when was that for you? When I skied or snowboarded last was last April in the, uh, the Val d'Isère area of France, of Savoie, France. I'm guessing you were ski touring then, were you? Well, you, I was just going to say, yes, because the lifts weren't, weren't open in France for the entire season last season. So uh, it was great getting lots of people into the ski touring side of things. Um, but it was a, was a, was a rather uh, slow, slow season professionally and uh, socially, that's for sure. Yeah, a very, very different season. Well, we'll come on to how uh, the forthcoming season is going to be uh, uh, looking. Megan, what about yourself? When were you last on snow? Um, oh, it must have been summer, but it was the snow centre at Hemel Hempstead. You'd <laughs> but, be surprised I mean... by how many guests uh, on the show their last uh, skiing, you know, was at Hemel or um, Chill Factory or one of the other indoor centres. What about um, actually in the outdoors on the mountain? It would have been March 2020. I think my last trip pre pre lockdowns was um, Whistler in Canada. Yeah, that was lovely. I'd not I'd not been before and <laughs> I sort of left and just thought, well, I actually really want to move here now. So, <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, Henry, I'm guessing you're going to be going back to Val d'Isere for the start of the season. What about yourself, Megan? Do you have any trips uh, lined up for this winter? Um, yeah, actually, end of this month, so end of November, um, hoping to head out to Tyrol um, for sort of opening weekend at Ischgl and also just travelling around some of the other areas. I think we'll be based in Innsbruck, so... Just getting a few different ski days in Great. <laughs> as early well, as be, possible, really. You'll definitely be one of the first uh, at end of November. I mean, we are uh, speaking as we are today on uh, Thursday, the 4th of November. We've seen quite a bit of snow uh, in the Alps over the last few days, and uh, it's getting the snow lines getting lower, which is which is very exciting. Uh, so let, let's have a little think uh, about, you know, what is the travel situation going to be? Uh, Katie Crowe isn't able to join us today, so I'm going to run the Battleface travel update. And the good news is the red list has been scrapped. Not that that really affects skiing too much. Uh, testing is minimal if you're vaccinated. It's now just a lateral flow test uh, when you get back to the UK 
uh, on day two. And in most countries, really good news from this week is that the UK COVID pass, your NHS pass, is now acceptable. So you don't have to worry about inconsistencies with EU countries. And I've also seen that that also covers Switzerland now because there was a little bit of debate as to whether you'd have to buy this Swiss COVID pass, which is going to cost uh, 30 Swiss francs. But uh, I've read that uh, the uh, NHS pass will be covered uh, for that as well. So those are all the, the really good things. The TBC undecided side of things is uh, whether perhaps boosters, you know, will be required for travel. We mentioned before that uh, if you are one of the early people to get double vaccinated, uh, countries like Austria have a limit of a year to be considered fully uh, vaccinated. So that could be an issue. More of an issue is going to be the situation for non-vaccinated under 18s from the UK, uh, because that will be all of them. Uh, and it looks like regular testing will be likely, but that's all still unclear at this stage, November. I think it will become more clear as um, we we progress to the season. France is going to make some announcements on that in uh, mid-November. And one really uh, interesting development I saw this week, possibly controversial, uh, in Canada, a number of uh, resorts have decided that they're only going to let fully vaccinated skiers and snowboarders on the slopes. Now, I'm going to stick a link to that into the show notes. Um, it's up in the uh, Nikiska uh, area. Um, I don't have a lot of details about that. It seems quite surprising, perhaps a bit controversial, but um, we'll see if other resorts pick up on that as well. Now, we mentioned about snow. I do have a couple of snow reports this week. First is from Dave Burrows, regular uh, contributor and presenter of the Ski Instructor podcast. His updates from Chavinia. It's a little while ago, so it came before the uh, the recent snow. And that's going to be followed by Simon Burgess. Uh, regular listeners will remember his report from the Lake District in May in episode 61. Uh, and last week he was out in the Netherlands. And it may be the flattest country in Europe, but uh, as you'll discover, has an excellent uh, uh, indoor slope there. Hello Ian, it's Dave Burrows from Snow Pro Ski School. I join you from the top, the very top of the Sassfe Glacier here in Switzerland. Um, I'm here with my colleague Mike, uh, Magic Mike, who works uh, Snow Pros in, um, in Villa. Uh, what's the conditions like today, Mike? It's beautiful. We've had a bit of an Indian summer here in this part of the Swiss Alps and uh, there's been very little cloud, so it's been quite sunny, but also at the top of the glacier it's been cold. This is currently we're at 3,400 metres. It's about minus 10, it's quite chilly on the fingers. The snow is good though, the snow's really good high up. It's quite uh, quite crisp but packed in really well. It's beautiful to train and ski early season. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like normally like, there's a few icy patches on the glacier, but actually, like today, it's just that really nice, soft, grippy sort of glacier snow that everyone's kind of looking for it's really it's good 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 for skiing isn't it yeah no enjoying it and and like i say there's uh, not too busy at all there's a couple of national race teams up here but um yeah there's a, there's enough uh, snow to go around and uh, fantastic conditions for this early in the season yeah we picked a really really nice day for it as well it looked cloudy to start with and actually it's been uh, it's, it's sort of all burned away so um so no it's uh, it's really good so in short ian um September, no, what are we on? October now. Late October condition, Sasfe Glacier, absolutely amazing. And next week, for those who've got the magic parts, actually, that it opens up down to Morania at two and a half. And we saw them, didn't we, like preparing the piste down there. So that was pretty cool. Um, just a quick one, just for those that are interested, just tell us what the sort of COVID protocols are on the lifts on the way up. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so there's masks on the, the lifts, on the two cable cars and of the train, so that's similar to all of Swiss public transport. But when you're on the drag lifts, obviously up in the open air, it's all, all uh, people are keeping a little bit of distance, but all safe and spread out. And no, no lifts on the drags, but on the enclosed transport, there are lifts, uh, there are masks still. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and there's no so there's no like COVID certificate or anything needed to access the ski lift. So it's pretty usual Swiss logic, you know, like Swiss public transport, no, no, uh, no passes. But obviously, any leisure in the open air, which is what we are on the glacier, uh, no, no masks, no passes required. So it's pretty, pretty logical. So uh, Ian, keep up the great work with your podcast. Um, we're loving your work, and from me and Magic Mike at the top of the Sassafras Glacier. See you later. Have a good season. Speak soon. Hi, it's Simon here reporting from Landgraf in Holland. Yes, this is a snow report from Europe's largest indoor snow dome. Conditions are much like you'd expect if you're used to riding at domes in the UK, but everything is on a much larger scale. The slopes are kept chilled to a brittle negative four degrees Celsius and Landgraf definitely feels colder than UK domes. There are three main runs, including a slope dedicated for freestyle with two additional learner slopes. The main chairlift is a relief running top to bottom, making the button lifts avoidable. The terrain park has jumps, boxes and rails of various sizes, enough to keep you entertained for a few hours of riding. The bars and restaurants at Landgraf require you to present proof of COVID vaccinations to be able to gain access. However, it is noticeable that relevant documentation was not checked leaving or arriving through the airports. Overall, it feels great to be back on snow, albeit man-made, and being able to travel has brought with it a sense that this season may just run smoothly for skiers and snowboarders. For me, roll on December and my first trip to Switzerland. If you'd like to follow my travels in Switzerland this winter, head over to simonjackburgess.com where you'll be able to find my latest posts and links to my YouTube channel. Hello, this is Rob Rees on the ferry boat on the Via Valstettese in central Switzerland in Canton Lucerne. I'm just heading towards Lucerne city centre, the beautiful site of the Pilatus Mountain towering above the city, covered in snow after quite extensive snow on Monday and Wednesday here. As a result, um, Andermatt has opened um, for skiing as of last weekend and there's been some fresh snow on the Gemstock, so it's a very good steep skiing to be had there. Obviously the glacier at uh, Engelberg, the Titlis Glacier, is already open and the Werner Oberland, the Jungfrau region, Muren in particular, is opening this coming weekend. If you're going further afield in Graubünden, the Diavoletza Glacier is already open and that will give you some pretty good skiing. That's where the Swiss ski team trains and they were training there for the two weeks prior to Seoul. So there's plenty of snow there. That's on the Bonina Pass and there's plenty of accommodation at this time of year in that part of Switzerland. Over and out. Well, thanks to Dave, who was obviously in Sassfey and not Chivinia. Uh, also to uh, Simon out in uh, Langraf in Holland and Rob Reese with his first snow report for the ski podcast out in Switzerland. Listener, we always welcome snow reports. If you'd like to contribute, then please email me your audio clip to theskipodcast at gmail.com. It's a shame uh, we haven't got a snow report of the last couple of days, but uh, I think we've all seen images on social media. Henry, you were saying to me earlier in the green room, you've seen a couple of photos this week. Yep, yep. Even just yesterday, November, November 3rd, 
uh, people waiting around, maybe not quite up to their to their knees, but uh, sort of 17, 1800 meters in the northern French Alps, uh, uh, waiting around between ankle and knee level in snow. Yeah, that's very encouraging. And uh, I shared a photo of Latania this morning, which I think off memory is uh, 1400 meters. Uh, and they snow down to there in the, in the uh, all the way down to the nursery slopes in the center of town. Megan, you've been sharing some pictures of good snow. Yeah, I saw some interesting ones actually yesterday from um, Lemon Weir in the Three Valleys. Um, and their caption was quite funny because they'd obviously gone to sleep and everything was orange and autumnal and there were leaves on trees and things. And then they woke up and it was completely white down to the resort level. So I think they were quite shocked, but also obviously very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's when you get this kind of, I would say early, you know, autumn snow, although we're in November, it is technically winter now. And sometimes it comes down and it disappears straight away. But what seems to be encouraging is that the temperature is staying low. And so, you know, it's a starter of a base. And, you know, places like, uh, well, Valterens, just up the road from uh, Lehman Weir, is due to open on the 20th of uh, November. Henry, you're going to be in Val d'Isere. I think that opens the weekend after the sort of 28th, 29th of uh, November. Right. So, you know, fingers uh, crossed that uh, we, it stays cold and uh, we get a really good start to the season because I think everybody, everybody wants that. Now, Definitely. Henry, I'm going to come back to you. Um, I mentioned in the uh, in the uh, lead in the introduction there that uh, you are the um, the creator of Henry's Avalanche Talks, and there's a kind of clue in the uh, in the title there as to what you do. But I wondered if you wanted to give us a, a little bit of a background about what uh, Henry's Avalanche Talks or Hat is. Well, I, I started Henry's Avalanche Talk um, in the in in the late sort of 1980s. I didn't know it was called Henry's Avalanche Talk at the time. <laughs> I was just doing Avalanche talk, Talks. And what led to that was is that I come from the Boston area of, of America, and I grew up as a junior racer in Vermont, and I got to a very high standard of uh, skiing. And when I retired from ski racing at the ripe old age of 15, um, so when I came over to do a gap year in, um, in, in France, uh, I had a high standard of skiing but no mountain knowledge whatsoever. So when I discovered the off-piste, um and for the first time in new england there's not a lot of really off off piece lots of ice <laughs> um so I, I discovered for the first time uh the vast expanses of the of the alps and deep snow and i thought it was the greatest thing i'd ever come across so i was ripping it up all over the place having the time of my life um and of course i was a perfect candidate to be um an avalanche victim so it wasn't very long before i triggered an avalanche and i was very lucky not to be caught up in it and so that sort of set the tone for the rest of my life. I, I did a degree in avalanche forecasting. And, right. Uh, Sorry, can I just quick, quickly ask, where were you then when you were first skiing, where that avalanche went off? I, I just ended up by chance in Val d'Isere. I'd never really heard of it before. You know, America, we have the biggest and best in the world. So no, no need to know about places other elsewhere. But <laughs> right. I discovered very quickly that the biggest ski areas in the world are actually in, uh, in, in the Alps. What a great uh, resort to to stumble across. And sorry, I interrupted exactly. you before. You mentioned that you did a, a degree in, in Avalanche. I did a, uh, a degree. A, uh, I, I specialized in avalanche forecasting at Montana State University and Boston University. And that was part of a geology degree that I did in those two places. And that was that was after I did my gap year. So I was able to rip myself away from this uh, fantastic thing that I discovered off piste skiing and touring. 
Um, but it did set the theme um, uh, for really for the rest of my life and uh, and and my you know the 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 my specialization in 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 studies at uh, Boston University State University, which was avalanche avalanche forecasting as part of geology degree. So I can see you had the the academic uh, background and practical experience from being on the mountain. How did that end up becoming teaching and sharing that with other people? It's a very good question uh, uh, because I did intend to do a master's degree, PhD, and studying snow and snow metamorphosis. And actually, the theme of my uh, my my research uh, that I did was was called the evolution of the snowpack. Um, and, and, and in relation to, uh, to weather events. So weather events and the evolution of the snowpack, what kinds of weather create uh, unstable snowpacks? What kinds of weather events uh, create stable snowpacks? So I was going to continue doing that and was uh, looking at universities in Grenoble in France when I came back over after my very close call with an avalanche. But then I discovered that in the, um, uh, not just the Val d'Isère teen area, but all throughout the Alps, people were dying in avalanches for the most simple basic uh, reasons, or even with the most simple and basic knowledge about accident reduction, they could have avoided a steep slope above a cliff or a steep slope above a massive hole that buried them under two or three meters. So I realized there's a big gap between the theory of avalanches and also avalanche awareness in terms of reducing the chance of being caught in an avalanche and uh, injured or killed. So I, that at that point in the late 80s, embarked on um, avalanche awareness, and uh, that started up in 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 Val d'Isère, and uh, it's continuing on now. You mentioned that you do these uh, these talks in Val d'Isère. What kind of format does it take then? Well, it's it started in Val d'Isère, but then it spread out all through the uh, the Alps, and um, continuing on through a traditional UK tour that I'm kicking off next week in London, Covent Garden at the Ellis Brigham. Uh, store there on Tuesday the 9th. And this is uh, our annual uh, tour that we've been doing for well over 10 years, um, except for last year, of course. And uh, the format it takes is, well, there's an essentials talk, which are the essential things that you need to know about how to uh, be safe out uh, on the mountain in terms of avalanches. There, there are other dangers, uh, crevasses and unglaciated area and, and, and falling and sliding. But the major, major uh, uh, risk out there for off-piste and touring is, is, is avalanches. So I cover the, the, the key points in an accident reduction framework kind of uh, approach in the essentials. And then I have some in-depth talks as well on, on, on the science behind triggering and, uh, and some other in-depth talks. But the really key stuff is in the essentials because what we look at victims and the facts behind avalanches, it was uh, victims of avalanches were not applying the basic things that you learn in avalanche, basic avalanche, um, education. And, you know, we talk about basic avalanche uh, education. I know that one of the things that uh, you focus on, and I think everyone should focus on, is it's fine having a, a transceiver, but you have to know how to use it. And many people just strap a transceiver on and assume that that means they're safe. And, you know, it can make it easier for you to be found, but it's no use at all if you don't know how to use it to be able to recover someone else. Exactly. And what I, what I say is that it's science learning how to use it, not rocket science learning how to use a, a, a transceiver. And in fact, with the evolution of the technology from analog to digital in the last 10, 15 years, it's much easier to, to find a buried, a buried victim. And we offer avalanche tr uh, transceiver training um, in the UK and some great in, in, um, environments too, like Sandbanks, ba Sandbanks Beach 
and uh, various different beaches around uh, the, the, the UK, as well as uh, Wimbledon Common and um, up in Manchester and some, uh, some, some similar types of environments. And what that allows you to do is get the basic training, at least for uh, searching for a transceiver, um, and not have to put that time in, um, take that time away from, um, from uh, your skiing on the mountain. Of course, there's digging, uh, probing and digging in the snow that, uh, you, that uh, you need to follow up on, on, on snow as well. But, you know, we're starting with the equipment and, and, the, uh, and the training. And um, so I'll finish that off, but I'll really, then I'll get, get to the really important part of it, which is prevention, because the best rescue technique is preventing the avalanche accident in the first place. And since most people trigger the avalanche themselves, that is something that can uh, be done and uh, is the most important thing to focus on. But so transceiver, uh, avalanche transceiver, shovel and probe are the most important pieces of equipment to have. And you have to have all of them in order to get someone out uh, from underneath the snow um, in 15 minutes or less, which we call a companion search and rescue or self-contained search and rescue. Most people, uh, the vast majority of people are alive once they're, if they're taken in an avalanche and buried, most of them are alive uh, for the first few minutes at least. After 15 minutes, uh, about 70 to 80% of people are actually um, alive. Uh, That's after the first first 15 minutes. After 30 minutes, um, there's only about uh, 40 to 45% of people are alive. Why is that? Because most people, most people die from suffocating underneath the snow and it happens really quickly. You can't uh, rely on an organized uh, rescue to get you out from underneath the snow. So you need to be all, everybody has to have this kit and uh, transceiver, shovel and probe and know how to use it. And there's, there's probing techniques as well and shoveling techniques, not rocket si- science, but you need to take the time, uh, you know, just a few hours to learn how to, the basics on how to use it. Yeah, I mean, the equipment is evidently uh, vital to have with you. But you're talking about, you know, accident uh, prevention being the uh, the best uh, risk strategy. Uh, in terms of that, you're trying to give people a greater awareness. For example, you mentioned before that people were skiing on pieces off piece that followed onto a cliff or followed onto a, a dip where snow could pile up. You know, presenting yeah. a, a, a danger, getting people to be more mindful of, of those elements. Yes. And what, what I encourage people to do is first look at the facts around um, around what the problem is in terms of accidents, um, get to know what the problem is. And then you can seek to 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 uh, to to come up with the, the solutions or solve the problem. So, first of all, um, in ac- avalanche accidents, uh, over nine, 90 uh, percent, over nine out of 10 people. So sort of 95 percent of all people who are caught in an avalanche uh, trigger it themselves. And uh, nine times out of 10 or more, it's what we call a slab avalanche that's involved, a cold, dry slab avalanche. And, um, and then also around in the accidents, as I mentioned before, it's 15 minutes to, to live, basically, if you're caught and, and buried. So that 95% of people who are victims of avalanches actually having triggered the avalanche themselves really points to the to the fact that, it, that um, it's us who are the triggers. And it's sort of in, in many ways um the uh the biggest danger um is is ourselves and uh, other pieces of facts around it too are in that most accidents happen in december january and february and on north sides of the mountain contrary to uh to the myths about accidents happening on the south side of the slopes and in springtime right okay i mean that's interesting as well that's one of the perhaps uh uh 
a myth that you've uh, debunked there. In my mind, I kind of anecdotally think that more people, there are more fatalities from avalanches in Val d'Isere than other resorts, relatively. You know, I'm wondering if, uh, if firstly, that's true. And secondly, if it's to do with the fact that there's more accessible steep terrain there or maybe more younger people who are less good at judging risk taking on those slopes. <clears throat> Val d'Isere is certainly uh, probably one of the best ski areas um, in the world for off-piste and uh, off-piste skiing and, and, and touring or free touring, which a lot of people refer to as the combination of taking lifts uh, off-piste and also touring anywhere from 15 minutes to several hours uh, using the combinations of the lift systems and the vast, uh, really beautiful uh, area. Uh, but Val d'Isere also has a, has a, has a, a very... Um, a very prominent name, especially in the UK. So that may be where you're getting to that, that, that conclusion. It's actually um, in France, it's the whole department of Savoie and Haute Savoie that tend to uh, have the most accidents. Um, and that's because of, uh, well, the great terrain and, and, and just the, the huge, um, you know, the volumes of people and the great expanses there. Um, and perhaps the steep slopes too, because avalanches release on steep slopes. Um, and, uh, and that's another piece of fact. That, that people um, need to, to, to be aware of, uh, you know, the types of points that actually lead to accident reduction rather than uh, just a myth that doesn't, that, that, that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, well, we really are just, uh, you know, skirting ar around this topic because I think your talks normally cover about 90 minutes or so. So I think maybe, yeah. you know, anyone who wants to take this further, um, you know, regular listeners will remember we've also had, a, we had a How to Become a Peaster special with Tom Greenall. We covered uh, in that some of the avalanche training he did. We had Caroline Elliott on who talked about avalanche rescue dogs. And you can just search through the website and you'll find all of these. And we did an avalanche special with Jim and Dave Burrows before. But if you'd like to find out out more henry remind me what your uh, uh website address is henry's avalanche talk if you put in henry and avalanche onto your favorite search engine it'll it'll come right up and our motto is safety is freedom uh, and uh, because that's our vision of, of of the mountains it's uh it's it's to make uh, safety um an empowering an empowering force and leading to more freedom uh, opening the door to more adventure and uh, more enjoyment more success out on the mountain uh, thanks to knowing uh, the, 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 the true, uh, knowledgeable, and informed pieces, points that lead to accident reduction that you can apply to get the most out of your time on the mountain. And that's us, Henry's Avalanche cool. Talk, where safety is freedom. Okay, well, that's great, Henry. Thank you very much for that. And, um, you know, I, it's a topic that always attracts a lot of attention. Most people don't necessarily give it as much attention as they, uh, as they should do. I'd like to move on to you, uh, Megan, now, if I uh, could. And this is your second appearance on the show. I didn't actually look up to see when the first one uh, was. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, I think in the snow, uh, the magazine and the website, you know, made it through the pandemic, despite the whole saison blanche we had last year can, can i ask was it was it tough getting through that period in terms of the, you know the 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 business the magazine etc you know how did you get through it as a business well obviously it was quite a tough 18 months or so um as it was for everyone really um definitely wasn't a normal year for us and for the industry as a whole of course i do think you know we had to batten down the hatches a little bit as as did sort of every company but in a way, I think we were almost in quite a lucky position because, you know, we're quite a, 
a good sized company where you know we're not a huge company so it meant that we can be quite agile and respond quite quickly in situations like this where we do have to be quite flexible and change things sort of as and when really and so you know I think we we had quite a privileged privileged position in that respect um but I will say what was probably the most tough part about it was just seeing the industry as a whole and the impact it was having on everyone you know it wasn't easy for any of us to sort of just sit back and and watch as the season didn't happen and then you know businesses started to struggle and it was just as mountain lovers ourselves, obviously we all wanted to be out there. I mean, Henry, you're very lucky that you were in the mountains, but yes. for the rest of us, we were kind of watching the snowfalls and thinking like, oh gosh, what I would do to be there. But obviously the resorts won't open anyway, but yeah, it was just, that was probably the most the most tough thing about it. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned before to you in the green room, before we uh, went live, that doing the podcast last winter was was great for me because uh, like yourself I missed out on the uh, on the mountains and it was so good to be able to have guests on the show who were out there and uh, enjoying it although making us insanely jealous and because it was a very good <laughs> snow season last year talking about you know some of the uh, uh, the deep snow but what I found really interesting and I wonder if you kind of felt this through I don't know engagement with social media or, or with uh, users is that a lot of people contacted me listeners to the show saying oh thanks for you know keeping us in contact uh, with the skiing world you know through the uh, winter did you find that at all when you were putting out content through last winter? We did um, but I do think there were, I think there were kind of two distinct camps last winter where there were the there were the half that were wanting to see what was happening and just wanting the inspiration and thinking about next year and all that and then there were the half that were kind of saying stop showing us this it's just making us upset it's just making me depressed I don't want to see it so I do think you know it was it was finding the balance between the two obviously trying not to make people too upset that they weren't there but whilst also keeping the the mountain spirit alive obviously for this year yeah. And I mean, did you ever run out of things to, to write about, given there was less going on in, in ski resorts? Um, we never ran out of things to write about at all. I think there was definitely a bit of a focus shift, though, as it wasn't what we would normally be writing about in the season. But, you know, it was more sort of unique stories, snowfalls and a lot, obviously, of pandemic news. You know, we created basically an entire new online microsite that was just what's happening in resorts, what's happening with travel, what's, you know, ABC of COVID-19 with skiing really but yeah I I wouldn't say we ever ran out of things to talk about it was just definitely a bit of a focus shift from normal. Yeah it's nice to be able to hopefully change that uh, conversation. I know we're having the update in every podcast about you know what the story is in relation to traveling but I'm very much hoping that within the next month or so we're actually going to be start talking about people going on their holidays and going skiing in a relatively normal way and that will be very exciting when we come around to that I think yeah definitely and I do think like you mentioned earlier it's there was a bit of a shift towards online and social media a lot more you know um the print magazine kind of wasn't our focus last year it was more just getting the news to people across the platforms that they will actually be using at that point um, obviously everyone being locked down in their homes and so that gave us you know as I said we were in quite a lucky position where we've always we've always made our online what do you call it presence a big priority especially in the last five six years so 
you know, we have the website, which we're constantly updating and making better. We've got a, like a lot of followers on social media, on our Facebook, our Instagram. And we've now got like the YouTube show, which we carried on during lockdown virtually, which was <laughs> quite an experience. But I think all that kind of stood us in very good stead because that's where people were spending their time, you know, was online. I, um, you know, I've been, I contribute to in the snow, um, you know, most uh, winters. And, you know, I find it when I do a snow report from wherever I am, uh, you know, I actually really enjoy the fact that the reach is so good. I'm actually doing a video and a whole bunch, you know, thousands of people are looking at it. And that's quite validating. It makes me think, well, it's worth all of this uh, time that I'm uh, uh, putting in, uh, which is great. What about, you know, this winter? Are you seeing any, any, trends this year in terms of I don't know features or how advertisers are feeling are they feeling confident yeah I mean on the confidence thing it's been a really interesting one because obviously during like the sort of the darkest months of the pandemic it was like we weren't even having those conversations you know that was something for another time it was more just keeping in touch on a personal level but I would say in the past few weeks there has been such a turnaround in terms of confidence and you know advertising interest because you know, I don't know, I think if you'd asked any of us about six to eight weeks ago, we would have probably been a lot less positive than we are now about this season actually happening. Um, so, yeah, that's been quite quite unexpected. It's been such a drastic shift recently. Um, but obviously that's very good because it means people are booking, people have the confidence that they're actually going to get away. And that's always a good sign. Um, in terms of trends on features... It's, it is really interesting because people have obviously started thinking quite differently since lockdowns and pandemics and all this. And even though sustainability was a was, you know, it was a growing there was a growing interest in that before the pandemic. There's definitely, definitely been a marked increase in sort of traffic to the pages of our site that are about train travel or driving to the Alps or sustainable ski gear or even, you know, if you would have seen in the magazine, we had a whole feature on skiing as a, a new vegetarian. Um, things like that are definitely, that's what's getting the most engagement, the most, there's a conversation around it really, I think, because people's priorities have have changed somewhat. Yeah, I mean, well, that's really encouraging to hear. And it backs up other uh, kind of surveys. I may have referred to it before. I've certainly tweeted about it, that uh, the mountain trade network did a survey a while ago where they're tracking people's interest in sustainability and it's been increasing as you say during that period and i think that part of that is throughout lockdown uh, people perhaps have begun to appreciate nature more and people saw how carbon emissions dropped maybe pollution dropped etc and it's made them more interested in the environment and you know it's a big big topic at the moment because of cop 26 uh, going on and uh, people are becoming if not uh, more conscious more conscious of what is required to to make those changes so so that is really encouraging and, and you mentioned about the positivity from advertisers you know last in the last episode we ran quite a lot of interviews uh, with people from the Birmingham show and that was really positive I know that um, Dom uh, publisher of in the snow magazine was there and he was very positive about the number of people passing through yeah definitely I mean I I got up there on the Sunday and I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by how like busy and buzzing it was really. Um, I didn't obviously know massively what to expect because they've, it's not been happened before, but yeah, it was, it was just great. And the conversations we were actually having with skiers on the ground 
were again very positive because obviously sometimes it can be quite difficult when the, when the only conversations you're having are with other ski companies and advertisers and things you're not entirely sure that you're getting the exact truth of what's happening with skiers minds on the ground but being able to talk to them at the snow show everyone just seemed so enthusiastic to get out there this winter I think I'd, I've never really seen a an atmosphere like it in the sense of everyone just I feel like everyone's just going to be appreciating it so much more this year yeah for sure I think it's self-selecting to a certain degree because the sort of people who would make the effort to go along to a ski show are probably the keenest and therefore they are going to be the ones who are most likely to ski but um, anecdotally, I mentioned it before, you know, I moderated a couple of the sessions and I got uh, the audience to stick their hands up if they were planning to take a holiday, if they're planning to take more than one holiday. And, you know, it was very, very uh, encouraging. Uh, well, that's that's great, Megan. Thanks very much for that. That's good, you know, insight into, into that side of things. We mentioned the Birmingham show there. So actually, I did mention I did a few interviews with people. Uh, a couple of listeners have asked if we're going to be publishing the Ski Podcast Live uh, session that we had. And I'm sorry to say you had to be there for that one because the acoustics in the hall meant it just wasn't possible. But one interview I didn't run uh, in the last episode was with uh, Olympic uh, medal winner Billy Morgan, who won the uh, bronze medal in the big air in Pyeongchang. So uh, let's have a listen to that. Great, so I'm here at the National Snow Show with Billy Morgan. You're here on the Greystone uh, stand, right? Um, yeah, There's amazing facilities. Just because the mini ramps here. <laughs> right, will bit, you be yeah. on it yourself? Yeah, a little, little go this morning. Yeah, I just yeah. saw some, some guys doing skateboarding demonstrations, and this is a, a, a complex in Manchester, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Have you trained there before? Yeah, yeah, I've been up there quite a lot. Um, I'm, I'm an ambassador of theirs. Um, an amazing facility, and it's, it, they're, they're still growing. They're just putting a climbing wall in upstairs, so they've got trampolines, big gymnastic floors, space, big jump into foam pits, big skate park, mezzanine upstairs with coffees and stuff. Yeah, so for the British team, this kind of uh, feature is really useful, good. right? Yeah, it's a good place to go and, and do free sports. I mean, the, the, we're definitely lacking that in this country, and they're, they're leading the charge. On, yeah. On, on right, actually, I went out last year to Cromontana and went to a place called uh, Alaya Chalet. Do you know that place at all? Uh, it feels like they've almost modelled it on this. Really? They've got a pump track, skateboarding outside, cool. and a skateboarding area, and uh, the indoor thing as well. But you, you, there's a trampoline here uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, did you do a bunch of trampolining? Because you did gymnastics back in the past, yeah, right? Yeah, I did a little bit of gymnastics when I was really young, and then I quickly jumped into sports acro. So I did acro for about eight years. Right. Until uh, I was 14, and then quit, and then kind of slowly transitioned into snowboarding somehow. Right, and, and how did that segue into snowboarding work out? Um, I went skiing with school and they, you know, like, you know, went and did my ski lessons and then saw the cool borders coming down the slope and was like, that's a bit of me, that, and I want to go at that. So I went with my friend and, um, and yeah, hooked, kind of just like really enjoyed the, the snowboard scene, everybody having fun at the dry slope. Um, and then went away and started doing winter seasons and then it all kind of spiraled out of control. Where were you doing those Morsi. seasons? Morsi in Morsi. 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 Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Were you working for a tour operator? No, I, I saved up as much as I could all summer and did the season as cheaply as possible so right. I didn't have to work. So you using, it, it, uh, they have a big pipe in uh, Avoriaz, were you up there? Uh, it did have a pipe, I was in it very rarely, right. um, which uh, I should have been, but <laughs> I just like jumps too much. You know? Okay. Because big air yeah. kind of became your speciality, That's right? Thing, yeah. And there can't be many places where you can practice that. Well, there is now. Yeah. yeah there's enough places with big jumps um, about, especially when the season gets going. Um, and airbags, uh, there are many more yeah, of those now. We've, which uh, We've got one in Lavigno. So we yep. kind of partnered with the Italian national team and we, we've got, um, we took our 
big airbag out there that we used to train on. It's a landing bag rather than just like your bog standard airbag. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you've retired from competitive uh, yeah. snowboarding uh, now. And you know what? I've been watching the videos recently and I'm bloody glad I have, to be honest. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, I thought, you know, they've been saying it for generations, you know, like, oh, you know, we don't know how much farther, further snowboarding can go. We must be reaching the limits. It's still going mental. The kids are doing like loads and loads of different 1800s now it's just standard which right. is, it's just blows my mind you know okay when i did that, that pod back in 2016 it was um you know the first ever one and i was like that was so mental i can't <laughs> i can't imagine lots of people doing it now it's standard yeah uh, and i guess i mean for your sport then by my standards you're pretty young but by your sport you're uh, a bit older you've, a coffin dodger now, you've, you've packed a lot into your life already and yeah. uh, in fact i can just see next to us we've got some copies of your uh, bi uh, autobiography drop in yeah right? it's a biography right not right. right if somebody else writes it I, if someone you, else writes it it's a biography yeah, yeah i can't read or write so uh, <laughs> so uh, it's a biography <laughs> right but it basically covers you know the whole of that olympic journey and, and everything leading up to it and beyond you know from my you know growing up and my birth in Southampton to growing up on the dry slope, enjoying the season air life, all the fun that came along with that, and then joining the team and and you're just you know my, my kind of path from basically from the dry slope to getting a, an Olympic medal. It, it took me a while to realise that it it's a you know a story that people would want to read about. You know, writing a book about yourself is it's quite a strange thing to do, but I think now I've finished it, it's, it's a good story. Well, I think it's, it's, yeah. to me it sounds like a good story. There are very, it. very few British people who've won any sort of medal at the Winter Olympics, but to uh, to win it as a, a as an Alpine uh, athlete yeah, as well it. is pretty impressive. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's brilliant, uh, Billy. Thanks very much, and uh, uh, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. Now, I mentioned uh, his book. I received my copy earlier this week, uh, so I will review it. But um, I'm really enjoying it, you know, so far. And the really good news is that we've got a spare copy uh, that I'm going to give away as a prize. So if you'd like to win a copy of Billy Morgan's uh, biography called Drop In, all you have to do to go into the draw is to tell us why you listen to the ski podcast. Uh, you can enter on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You just need to make sure that you tag the ski podcast or by dropping me an email to theskipodcast at gmail.com and I'll pick a winner at the end of uh, November. So that was Billy Morgan. Uh, yesterday, I was joined by Al Morgan from Ski Kit Info for our regular equipment update. A question I wanted to tackle, and that lots of people might have heard of but not necessarily understand, is what on earth is a rocker? Uh, so I asked Al if he could explain to the layman, which is me, what a, a, a rocker is. Great. So I'm joined uh, today by uh, Al Morgan from Ski Kit Info. He's our uh, resident equipment expert. And today I've got a question for you, uh, Al. Lo I saw a lot of this at the at the uh, Birmingham show. You know, lots of skis out there talk about rockers. Now, can you tell me from a layman's point of view, what is a rocker? Absolutely. I mean, rocker is not something new, but it's something that's not necessarily understood as well as it could be. So if we think well, certainly about... not understood by me, which is why I'm <laughs> asking the question. Yeah. So if we think about a normal ski, a traditional ski, put one ski on the ground, just like on the flat ground, the middle of the ski under where you stand on it, which is where the binding is, will be off the ground and the front and back will be on the ground. And they're generally the widest part of the skis that are on the ground as well. So that is called camber. It's got lots of names, standard camber, traditional camber, positive camber. It's camber. 
Um, and then when we're going to talk about other things, all skis have this little lift at the front in the shovel where it rises. When we're talking about rise through the front after this point, we're not talking about that shovel. Okay. So that's just, so the normal ski, you've got to sweep at the front for the shovel and then camber underfoot and the tip and tail of the ski are on the floor. When you stand on the ski, your weight then flattens that out. And what that does on hard snow, it exerts a more even pressure along the whole edge of the ski. So you get really good grip. Just the way that that works when it spreads out, it's evenly distributing the pressure some more grip, which is what you want for hard snow. Now, things get more complicated when we go into softer snow because we don't want all of that edge grip. And that's originally where this term rocker comes from. So if you imagine a rocking chair or a kid's rocking horse, it's got runners that it, that it sits on. And when you rest there on the flat ground, the middle is on the ground and the front and back are raised off the ground okay um, i'm i'm certainly i'm with you so far We're, great you're leading to us this is an innovation to do yeah. wanting to go off piece and develop originally absolutely so quite a while ago so <laughs> turn of the century it sounds old doesn't it so around <laughs> about 2002 then this shaping of the ski came about there was a, a chap called shane mcconkey who was an amazing skier and kind of revolutionized ski design when we're talking about rocker so if you want to float in soft snow you don't necessarily want all that pressure through the edge of the ski through the ends of the ski through the front and the back you actually want it to be different you want the ski to lift up in that softer snow and this is essentially what that full rocket shape like the bottom of the rocking horse or the rocking chair does now it's not as pronounced in skis but a full rocket ski put on the flat on the on the ground would be touching under where the foot is and the tip and the tail of the ski would be off the ground. That's full rocket. It gets called reverse camber as well and different names, but essentially that's the rocket profile. So you imagine hooning in deep, soft powder snow on a fat ski where it's lifted at the front and back. The ski's gonna be really easy to maneuver, nice and floaty, playful, happy days, brilliant. But we don't all have pure powder days and we don't all have brilliantly groomed perfect piece where we want a standard camber ski and that's where the vast majority of skis now in their shaping sit between those two extremes so does that mean that rock rocker skis are much more likely to be all mountain skis then originally it was for powder and then we saw it come into all mountain skis so when we're talking about all mountain we mean skis that are going to ski well on firm snow and make it easier to ski in soft snow then you start to go into free ride, which is more powder or powder skis. Some people call free ride skis. So if we stay just with the powder skis, you do get some that have that standard camber underfoot, and then they might have a rise through the shovel. Again, we call this rocker, that would be called tip rocker, right through before this really sharp sweep in the shovel. If the ski is lifted off the ground when you put it down, then that's rocker. It also gets called early rise. They're interchangeable terms. And that helps the ski to float up in soft snow, but also in those really challenging, crusty, kind of refrozen snow that you might get in the spring. That kind of shape can help hugely. And you can combine that with rocker in the back. So where the back of the ski is lifted up slightly, and then it helps to release out the turn. And it can make them really maneuverable, a lot of fun, but you still get those benefits of having grip underfoot. So are there any skiers that it wouldn't be suitable for assuming you're taking on that terrain is it better for a certain type of skier or not or if you want to take on that type of terrain it's definitely going to be to your advantage 
it's very hard now to actually get a ski that doesn't have it for that kind of terrain. So, so it almost answers itself. It's proven itself so useful and beneficial in that in that kind of skiing. Almost all freeride skis have some kind of lift to the front. Most of them will have it at both the front and the back. And the other benefit when you're skiing in soft snow, you want a bigger footprint to stand on so you don't sink. And if you've got rocket, there's less what we call effective edge so less bits trying to grab the snow because that bit of the ski where the, where just the standard camber is is shorter so it makes it easier to maneuver the ski but you mentioned all mountain skis since it was originally kind of brought about for power skiing it's come into all mountain skis and so it does benefit that because you get the benefit for the soft snow, but on piece, what we then found with rocket is you imagine you're on a ski, you tip it on its edge, you make a turn shape. So that whole ski is bending in an arc. So the whole ski is essentially in a rocket shape. Now, if you just start that for the skier, so you give that little bit of rise at the front, it starts to turn for them. So we saw it not just in all, all mountain skis, but start to come into pieced skis. And then we've got some really strong performance piece skis that had rocker tip and tail, and they were incredible because they weren't grabby. They had that little bit of forgiving nature front and back, but you had this really strong camber underfoot, and it was incredible. I even had stories from race departments in brands where their racers were getting skis, putting them in door frames, and bending them to put a bit of rocker in the tip of them so it does <laughs> does, that, does that work <laughs> well i mean this is this is when it wasn't being brought into race skis and if we look at some race product now the majority of world cup and fis race skis don't have rocker but for a lot of the race skis that you can buy for recreational skiing these full-on full performance piste skiing skis they do have rocker at the front and a, a number of them have it front and back and right. it works superbly well. Okay, but we don't recommend to uh, to our listeners that they jam their skis in the door to try and create, no, try no. And create their own rocker, right? No, unless you're being given 20 or 30 pairs of skis from a brand every winter because you are that good. No, don't go shoving your skis in a door frame and bending them. Uh, cool. That's really interesting. You also, you mentioned Shane McConkie. I've got to mention at this point, listener, uh, if you're uh, interested to to hear more about this, uh, uh, there's a ski podcast special interview I did with Tony McWilliam, who's the founder of Faction Skis. And he got to know Shane McConkie uh, pretty well in that era. And that was he was extremely influential in the design of the of Faction Skis that Tony came up with uh, at that time. Um, that, that's really interesting. Al, will you be able to join us again in a couple of weeks time? I would love to. Megan, did you know what a rocker was or do you know what a rocker is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, we've filmed quite a few videos at various ski tests over the years, you know, on the, the difference between a rocker and a camber kind of thing, just because it's one of those things that you think you know, but then actually you're not entirely sure. Well, that's good. That, that makes me slightly better because I feel like, <laughs> and Henry, I'm sure you know what a, a, a rocker is. <laughs> you know, I spent so much of my time uh, on the on the snow and avalanche side of things and the safety aspects that uh, and the ski tech technology. I just basically do what I'm told or listen to the experts. But I, 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 I know what the effect is and it helps to pivot the ski a lot more in powder. That's for sure. 
Let's go back to the Olympics. Uh, I interviewed a Billy Morgan, Olympic medal winner, and I did say to you in the intro that it's not just one Olympic medal winner in this week's episode, as I was lucky enough recently to interview Izzy and Zoe Atkin. Now, Izzy won the Olympic bronze in the slope style at Pyeongchang, and she's going to be joined at Beijing by her younger sister, Zoe, who's competing in the big air. I'm going to publish a special episode with the full interview, but for now, here's a, a little snippet of our conversation. You've been on the British programme, you know, from a, a very young age. I know Pat Sharples pretty well uh, from, uh, you know, a long way back when we were both in Courchevel together. And in fact, I've interviewed him for the ski podcaster before. I understand he was sort of quite influential in, in you coming towards the British team. Is that right, Izzy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was definitely um, a key figure. You know, I, I have dual citizenship and close family ties in the UK, so it was already something I was thinking about. And then, yeah, my dad and I, I remember we had a meeting with Pat Sharples and just came away from that meeting with such a positive um, impression of him and the team. And that was a big, um, played a big role in my decision. And I read somewhere that you were brought up on a diet of uh, Ribena and Marmite. <laughs> So not many people have Marmite in their lives unless they've got a British connection. Yes. So there so in the Marmite so test, good. some people say you either love it or you hate it. And which side are you falling on then, uh, Zoe? Oh, love it for sure. I don't know how you <laughs> could hate Marmite. It's so good. Every time someone tells me they don't like it, it's because they put too much on it. Now, I've got a question for you. You're obviously both very talented in your family. One of you is doing slope style and one of you is doing half bite. Did you just like pull things out of her cup to decide who was going to do what? I actually followed Isabel at first into slope style. I mean, we started doing freestyle in general. So we were doing everything. We were doing moguls, aerials, slope style and half pipe. And I mean, I kind of just happened to be better at half pipe skiing and was definitely a lot less scary for me so I preferred it and then when you start training more because you like it more and then you get better and yeah now I'm specialized in half pipe and it's cool that we get to do different disciplines. I was just gonna say it is good that we compete in separate events because we are both very competitive in nature and I think it would probably not be good for our relationship if we had to compete against each other. Megan, quick question for you then. Uh, will you be watching the Olympics when they're on? And if you are, what's top of your list to watch? Oh, of course I will. I got absolutely hooked on the Summer Olympics, so I can only imagine what I'm going to be like when the winter ones are all around. Um, I'm really excited about the Ski Big Air this year. I mean, it's the first time that it's been included in the competition, so it's going to be amazing to watch that. And, you know, you were just talking to Izzy and Zoe, and, it's we, you know, we finally get to see them doing doing what they're great at so it's going to be really 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 interesting that one and also the ski and snowboard cross I absolutely love watching that every year every Olympics just because it's such a fun event yeah that's definitely my favorite as well and my kids uh, really enjoy that one uh, Henry what about yourself what will you be looking out for at the uh, Winter Olympics racer an alpine racer to uh, by by s- my origins of skiing I'll definitely be watching the the, uh, the Alpine events, slalom, giant slalom, super G, downhill and the combined events. And all my kid, my three kids are, are in the, the, the club, this sport and, uh, and Val there and really keen on that. But uh, as you and Megan pointed out, I love watching the, the skier board cross. Um, 
and uh, all you know the other skew events as well, the um, the big air. But I have to say, I'm a bit, a bit embarrassing. I love watching the figure skating. I think they're amazing. <laughs> you know the right? stuff they pull off under such huge, huge uh, uh, pressure is uh, to me phenomenal. <laughs> So I did see uh, there's a business called Grace Note, I think, who, uh, you know, look at uh, current performances and predict uh, how many medals uh, each country will get. And I think they said Team GB are predicted to get three medals. Uh, and that's across everything. Now, I thought that was quite low. I think it'll be uh, more than that because I think the skiers and snowboarders could get that, if not more, uh, on their own. But um, we'll be we'll be following the, the Beijing beat uh, more closely as we uh, get nearer to the Games. Right, we'll move on to, uh, to towards the close of the, the end of the podcast just now. Um, I noticed, I had a little look, I see we've got 84 ratings on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts uh, just now with an average score of 4.7. If you think 4.7 sounds a bit low and you think we deserve a five star, how about giving us uh, another review? That would be that would be really helpful and it does help other people find us. Um, also reviews in there since our last episode. Uh, Leon Butler, well, I think he must have been at the Birmingham show because his comment says it was, it was cool to see the ski podcast live um someone called al morgan on linkedin said a superb episode of the ski podcast but i think he might be biased uh tim boys on facebook said i only managed a few hours uh, saturday morning he's talking about the uh the birmingham show but i was really impressed especially the speaker lineup which i can only assume he means us at the ski podcast uh, someone called sofa to slopes on instagram said fab morning of endurance training while listening to the ski podcast so i'm glad we're uh, keeping you going through your uh, training there uh, don't forget you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash ski podcast all cuppers are much appreciated uh, uh this episode i'd like to thank kimberly k and mike greenland and mike greenland uh, actually said uh, love the podcast I've skied at least twice a year ever since 1970. I started on wooden skis and lace-up leather boots. Things have changed. <laughs> Missed my first season this year due to COVID, but hope to keep the calendar annual record going as I'm off in December. So enjoy your holiday in December, Mike, and, and thanks very much for the coffee. Uh, and now I do really enjoy uh, um, reading all feedback about the show. So please do uh, email me, theskipodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a few stickers left. I just sent out uh, some out to Austria this week uh, that I can see that the pile is diminished, but we have some. So if you'd like some for your skis, board, helmet or phone, just drop us an email and uh, with your uh, address. But for now, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today. Henry, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Ian. It's really been no a pleasure problem. to be here and an honor as well. And uh, and thank you, Megan, for uh, joining us. Uh, enjoy your skiing later this month. Thank you. Oh, I will try. I feel like, like everyone else, I'll definitely be appreciating it a lot more than normal this year. That's great. And finally, I'd like to thank you, listener, for sharing your time with us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.